Kevin, I couldn't agree with you more on that, that prayer for our children as they finish the school year. It's, uh, it's April, April 16th, right? It's, it's halfway through April, and as we, as we look forward into the next six weeks, um, in my mind this past week, I've been thinking about our high school seniors. I think we have, uh, I think it's five, five maybe more high school seniors in our group here today, and I know we have a lot of other Students, um, man, it's so good to see you present in a chapel service. It's, it's really encouraging for us who are older. You are the next generation. I think it matters. Um, I also know that a lot of us are moving probably in six weeks from now. So it's been on my mind to speak to those of you who are high school students and junior high students and any students of any age to make good use of this time before the summer hits. Our teenage years and our use of our 20s, they're so foundational. It's when we make life-changing choices. Um, we firm up our identity. Wouldn't it be nice if there is a book of the Bible that helped us shape and understand our identity? The good news is there is such a book. Another thought that's been on my mind this past week, I've been, it's been a year, I think, since Germany has officially lifted the COVID restrictions. This is this time last year, I think, when it just started to lift more formally. In COVID, so many memories, so many things we learned. Um, we've learned to appreciate so many things, especially, I think, being together. Isolation has its consequences. Um, there are times I surely enjoyed my time with my coffee on my couch, having online chapel service. But it's so good, it's so good to see each other face to face. And I think you would agree with me too that our face is important. And there are a lot of things we've learned this past year that God's design in our human face has, it's, it matters deeply. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a book, a specific letter in the Bible that taught us why we need to be needed? Why family matters, why marriage matters, why communities matters, why church matters, why cities matter. And God has given us a letter in the scriptures, the book of Ephesians. Absolutely relevant for this specific time and I think in our history. First, to help us firm up our identity, to know why we are and who we are and who we belong to, but also to remind us that in Christians, we are not just individuals. We need each other, and we need to be needed by each other. So this coming spring, this coming summer, I'd love to lead you we would love to lead you through the book of Ephesians if you're interested in joining us. I don't want to rush it, but we are going to move at a good pace, and I'd like to just talk with you really quickly about the plan. In April now and into May, we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Ephesians, especially for our students as you finish out the school year. Followers of, followers of Jesus have an identity. You have purpose, and you are valuable. You'll hear these words, and very challenging words, I might add that you are chosen, adopted, that you are redeemed, even predestined in love. 
And for believers, you're also sealed. Another important word, the Holy Spirit is proof that you are sealed and you have identity as a Christian. In Jude and July, moved into chapters 3 and 4. Our identity, though, is not just in being an individual. What Paul teaches uniquely in this letter is that we are a new people and that we are a new culture, not based on skin color and not based in rank, not based in language that we speak. In Christ, we are a new community, a redeemed culture. And this new culture in this church has roles to play. And it's very important as we understand our identity that we each have a role, a part of this body of Christ. In July and August, we'll conclude Ephesians with the most practical um, last two chapters, chapter 5 and 6. In our speech, in our words, in the way that we joke with each one another. We'll also learn how our bodies and our sexual ethic all are ways that we witness to the world. In chapter 5, we'll talk about marriage and that great metaphor of marriage. Husbands, we'll be reminded to love our wives sacrificially, just as we love ourselves. And wives will learn, relearn that art, that challenge of respecting our husband. And if you stick with me, there's that word and word that nobody loves to talk about, but we will hear. Submission. Yes, extremely jarring and unsettling for those who are worldly, but that word submission is so beautiful and satisfying for those who are united under the headship of Christ. The first week of August is a vacation Bible school. Very fitting how this timing works out. We'll talk about how we honor our parents. Ephesians chapter 6 also talks about work. For those of you guys are in exercises like you mentioned to you. Work matters. And how we deal with supervisors and our subordinates really matters to God. And God talks about this in the book of Ephesians. And of course, that very famous chapter, chapter 6 at the end, the armor of God very fitting that we know and understand the spiritual realm in that famous last chapter of Ephesians. And if you're interested, I would like to give you an opportunity to speak. Just take three or four minutes if you're interested. I'm not asking everybody to do it, but maybe there's some of you who are here who wouldn't mind to use your voice just for a few minutes to talk about something that you learned, you're encouraged by. You're kind of like a short little testimony time, maybe the last week of August. So keep that on the back of your mind. That'll take us up to Labor Day. So, Also, thinking of Labor Day, I'm thinking of doing another chapel-sponsored retreat, all chapels again. If you're interested, just, just think about it, Labor Day. I haven't set up the plans yet, but, uh, but they are in the works. Something to think about. So today... I would like to introduce you to this book of Ephesians. If this is your first time here, what a great time to begin with us. Today, I'd mostly like to talk about the author because you need to know the author if you want to understand to whom he's written. We'll talk a little bit about the context, some of the background from, background from which his letter was written. So if you're able, and if you have your Bible with you, Please turn to the book of Ephesians with me. And in the weeks ahead, please do your best to bring a personal Bible with you. If you need one, let me know. I've, uh, I've ordered several of these. Um, 
study Bibles, full of charts, full of articles, full of people who have done their homework to understand some very difficult passages in the Bible. If you would like one, I have one for you. So keep that in your mind as well. Ephesians is kind of at the last half of your Bible, probably eight-tenths of the way through, somewhere around there. Um, one of the ways that, as a kid I used to, to learn the books of the Bible was through this little phrase, uh, General Electric Power Company. Do you remember that? General Electric Power Company. Um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians just kind of helps you understand where the book of Ephesians is. So a little structure for the sermon today. First, I'd like to talk about Paul. About a story. And then I'd like to talk about Ephesus, the city to which it was written. And then conclude the sermon by speaking of what Paul speaks about in the first two verses. His two core values. He mentions them at the beginning. Grace and peace. We'll finish the sermon by talking about grace and peace. So let's begin with the very first word of the book of Ephesians. Do you see it there in front of you? Paul. There's something impressive and something admirable, I think, about a person who boldly puts their name in public. Do you agree? It's easier to hide. There's something admirable about people who confidently use their name not for their own glory, but for God's glory, knowing that it will probably cost them something in the end. Yes, Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote to was very much used for God's glory. But as you can see, it will come with a cost to Paul's life. This first picture here. And this is a picture of a church in Rome called St. Paul Outside the Walls. Have you been there? Maybe you have. This is probably where Paul was buried. Uh, Paul was killed in Rome, according to tradition, somewhere between the years 62 and 65 AD. Um, Paul's life was taken during a very violent and unsettling time in Rome. He was likely killed when many other faithful followers of Jesus were also killed under a great purge of Christians by then Emperor Nero. He's probably buried here in St. Paul outside the walls. In the early 2000s, there was pressure from a lot of the pilgrims who came to Rome because they said, we have this modern technology, let's do something with it. So in 2005, the Vatican excavated this big white marble eight-foot coffin, or sarcophagus, in 2009, the archaeologists did some carbon dating on the bones fragments that were in this sarcophagus. And they dated it probably to the first and second century. They also found an inscription on this sarcophagus that said, Apostolus Paulus, the Apostle Paul. And some very old um, fragments of some relics that were left inside with it as well. Paul was born in a town called Tarsus, Roman jurisdiction. Therefore, Paul was a Roman citizen. It's a good thought to remember that God uses all parts of our story. He uses our citizenship. He 
connects the dots. He used Paul in a way that he would not use the other apostles and disciples of Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the map's kind of hard to see there, but you see where the yellow star is. That's where Tarsus is, the place where Paul was born. Green star, Ephesus, the town we're writing to. Paul, as you might guess, was a Latin name. But the given Hebrew name Paul had was Saul. Jewish families, as you might know, very proud of their lineage, especially when you can trace it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And Saul's lineage came from the tribe of Benjamin. And what better to name someone from the tribe of Benjamin than the first king of Israel at the time, King Saul. That's how Paul might, we don't know for sure, but might have got his name. If you've ever written, written or read any of Paul's letters, you know Paul was a very educated man. He's a sharp mind, his intellect. And the scriptures tell us in the book of Acts that he was actually discipled and trained under one of the most famous Jewish rabbis, Rabbi Gamaliel, doctor of Jewish law at the time. Again, God uses our minds. He uses our experiences. He uses our teachers in his mind to shape his good plan. But Saul, in his own mind, in his own words from the scriptures, is that he became a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, very strict, zealous, fiercely loyal to the Jewish law. So, the very first time that Paul was mentioned in the Bible, do you remember when? It's during the time of the killing and the stoning of a young Christian named Stephen, in the book of Acts, if you like history, you read it. He says that the people who were stoned, stoned this man named Stephen, the witnesses who were there, came and laid their garments at a young man named Saul. And it was Saul who approved of this execution. The book of Acts continued to tell us that Saul was the one who ravaged the early Christian church. He dragged men and women out of their home for being a Christian and put them in prison. Isn't it ironic, isn't it? The Paul, the one who imprisoned many young Christians, spent the last years of his life also in a prison. This letter that we know as Ephesians, one of the letters probably written from a Roman prison or house arrest. From one of Paul's last letters, one of them he used just before his death. In 1st, 2nd Timothy, Paul candidly wrote about the man he once was. And this is what he said. Paul said, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was insolent. Insolent means to be an angry, rude, and arrogant man. In other words, Paul is saying, I was angry and a rude and an arrogant man, and an opponent of Jesus and the gospel. But then at the very end, he said, I received mercy. I received grace from the Lord Jesus Christ who overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, connecting all the dots in our life, God uses our citizenship, he uses our intellect, he uses our language ability, he even uses our ugly past to help us know the great love of Jesus Christ. So as you read the book of Ephesians with us this coming, this coming summer, 
see it as a, just a testimony to the change that God did in a man who was so rude and so arrogant, a man who put people to death and put them in prison. Such a beautiful letter if you see it in that perspective. Paul's famous change, his conversion, it didn't happen in a chapel service. It didn't happen in a way that Paul was expecting or even wanted it. Paul's great conversion, as you might know, occurred while he was on the road, on this road to Damascus. Sometimes life's great awakenings don't happen when you expect them to. Would you agree? Sometimes they happen when you're on the road. From Acts chapter 9, this is what the scripture teaches about Paul. It says, Saul, while still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, modern-day Syria, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was on this road, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven surrounded him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? His response was, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Just as a reminder, as a reminder, in case it happens to you, if, uh, if anyone ever attacks you for being a Christian, just remember they're also attacking the Lord first. Paul's conversion was dramatic. Probably not like the way you experienced your walk with the Lord. For some others, like Simon Peter, and probably like you and me, it happens over time. But your conversion story, maybe it was unexpected and dramatic like Paul, or maybe it was gradual, maybe gradual like Peter. But regardless, we all agree to this one testimony, words that Paul also wrote later in one of his letters. He said, Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And I received mercy so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience in me. It might be an example to anyone who believe in him for eternal life. So here's the point. The point I remember. Remember that God works through extraordinary people sometimes. And Jesus, yes, has perfect patience for those who are rude and angry and the most arrogant people in life. And, as you can guess, the greatest sinners... Once they meet Jesus face to face, once they believe, they often become the greatest lovers. So, back to the first line of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The word apostle, we don't use that word very much in, our modern, in modern English. Um, the Greek word apostele, apo means off or away from. Stella means to send, so put them together. Apostolos means the one who was sent, one who was sent off and away. It mirrors the Great Commission, doesn't it? To go. 
There's something about the Lord's heart and his mind that desires us to be sent, to be used. Movement, to be uncomfortable. That's something that God does in our lives. And then the phrase, by the will of God. So, a question for those of you who are students. Graduating seniors. What do you think? It's impossible to know the will of God. <clears throat> will of God. It's not a simple formula. It's not an easy answer. The scriptures give us a lot of different answers to what it might be, but in Paul's own words, he writes this. I think especially to you students, he says. Ephesians chapter 5, 17. Make the best use of your time. The days are evil. And don't be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. The apostle Paul was here, I'm convinced he said yes. It is possible for us to understand and to figure out the word of God and the will of God. If you're interested, if you make the best use of your time, if you're willing to make the best of your time, if you're not willing to spend your days in a foolish way, to all of our students over here, who are here, if you're interested in figuring out what this next year is going to look like, be engaged with us. Go through this book of Ephesians with us. Bring a journal. Start taking notes. Find a mentor here in the chapel who can pray for you and ask you the hard questions and help you understand what the will of God is with your life. It's my sincere hope, I truly mean this as one of your pastors, that in time, your will will align with God's will. That the things that God loves will be the things that you love. The things that God hates will be the things that you end up hating. And the things that break your heart will be the things that break God's heart as well. Truly desire that for you. Now, the location. Where was this letter written to? To the saints, it says, who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. If you are able... Sometime, catch a flight from Frankfurt. Take it down to Istanbul or to Izmir. Get on a tour and visit the ancient city of Ephesus. It will strengthen your faith. The marble streets are most impressive. But we should remember that Ephesus, at the time of its height, was a very powerful city in the first century. Kind of like Stuttgart, but Stuttgart on a coast. Over time, the port city of Ephesus, it filled in with silt, therefore making it not a very transportable city. It lost its size over time. But its claim to fame was this. A massive temple that was made to the mythical Greek goddess Artemis. Pliny, you might have heard that name, one of our Roman writers of antiquity, described the temple in great detail. We actually have its measurements it was actually about the size of a football field using our Western measurements, 377 feet long, almost 200 feet wide and 60 feet high, almost entirely made of marble, 
there were 127 of these Ionic-styled columns, each about 60 feet in height. You may have heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, this was one of them. There was a man named Diordus Cyclicus, a man who wrote about 100 years before Jesus lived, who wrote this after visiting all the places. He said, when I gazed upon the walls of Babylon, which the chariots used to race upon, he said, I also visited the great Zeus. There was a big, massive statue of Zeus at one time in Greece. He said, I've seen the hanging gardens. I've seen the Colossus of Helios. It's like a great statue of, kind of like the Statue of Liberty that was once stood over a Greek port. He says, I've seen the great pyramids and the gigantic tomb of the Mausolus, a massive tomb they had in the past. But, he said, when I visited Ephesus and I saw the sacred house of Artemis, which towered to the clouds, all the other places I visited paled in comparison to this great wonder. This is to where Paul writes his letter. To a place where the massive temple, I think they have, I have this to you, an artist display of it. There you go, kind of what it looks like. Built on the, uh, the history of it. This was the power of this city. A temple and its power and its revenue which fueled everything in the city so much that it even fueled this too, this famous um, amphitheater in Ephesus that you can still see. But when Paul visited this town on his missionary journey, he poked it. And he confronted the magic arts, the evil spirits, and he showed them in person, in reality, what the power of Jesus really looked like. It was living. It was healing something that people had not experienced yet, and they got frustrated with the marble building that just collected money. So much in the book of Acts that they said, the people in the city said, Artemis, this great Artemis has counted nothing. So the citizens of Ephesus pushed back, and they cried out, great is the Artemis of Ephesus. The scriptures, you can read it, it's like a big riot happened in the town, and they pushed Paul and Gaius, this man named Aristarchus, into this theater right here, a riot rope back out, and the scriptures give us the details. Said for two hours, the people of the city said, "Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians." It's always, always been hard to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus in crowds, in crowds, in loud cities, in loud schools. In loud cultures that firmly hold to a tradition that's unshakable. But in every town, in every city, in every school, wherever you go now and even into your future graduating students, there always, always is a remnant of the Lord Jesus. So students... Wherever you go, no matter where you go, no matter how loud the environment will be, just like in Ephesus, there will be a faithful gathering of believers. So just go find them. Because they need you, just as you need them. Paul introduces this letter just about the same way he speaks about when he uses all of his other letters with these words. 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His letters to Rome, his first letters to Corinth, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To Galatians, to Philippi, to his letter to Philemon, same phrase. To Titus, he changed it up a little bit. He said, grace, peace to you from God our Father and Jesus our Savior. To the church of Colossae, he said, grace to you and peace from God our Father. For some reason, Paul left off the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of this letter. You're probably thinking after you let it, I can't believe I let off the name of the Lord Jesus. First Thessalonians, he kept it really short. He just said, grace to you in peace. He's probably tired at that time in his life. And his very last letter, written shortly before his days of the day he was probably beheaded in Rome, he said, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of his life, Paul needed mercy all the more. But a question for you as we soon conclude this sermon. What two words define you? What two words grip you in your identity? If you could pick two words to describe who you are as a man and who a woman, what would you choose? Paul chose these. Grace and peace. Grace. It's the word charis in Greek. It's where we get the word charisma. Paul loved this word. He used it 84 times in his letters. He was changed by this word. Charis, grace, simply means this. Undeserved favor. And from what I've experienced in life, and I'm sure the Apostle Paul would agree, people don't change by giving them more rules. People change when they experience grace. People are deeply impressed when someone gives them something that they don't deserve undeserved kindness. And this is what the Apostle Paul experienced, didn't he? He was angry. He was rude. He was an arrogant man. But God gave him something he didn't deserve. Favor. Forgiveness. God, make sure you understand this, has offered the same to you. Of course, it's best seen on the cross. Jesus God gives us favor. He gives us righteous standing. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us life in full color. So, a thought to you to ponder. As a recipient of grace, who in your life needs grace? Who in your life needs cars? The second word Irene in the Greek means peace. 
Would you say that you're a man of peace? Or a woman of peace? Or a young man or a young woman of peace? Would people say that you're conflicted or tense or rarely at rest? I don't believe that you can will yourself to be at peace. I've tried, and it just doesn't work. I think if you want to be a man or woman of peace, it's connected to grace. And you have to experience grace first. Like the Apostle Paul, I think you need to be invaded, convinced, overwhelmed, even conquered by kindness to truly experience the kindness of God in your life, the love of God that he has for you. That's how it begins, and that's how you begin to experience peace. There's only one real person who can help you find this grace, and I think you know his name. This weekend, um, my daughter came home from Bodensee. She's right here from front. Sorry to bother you, Jane. I don't mean to embarrass you. It's not my intention. She's going back in a couple hours. But while she was here, um, she taught me a phrase in German. I like to repeat it to you because I like you to learn it. Here it is. You ready? Everybody repeat after me. Ready? Du bist. Du bist. Der Schlüssel. Zu meinem Herzen. You got it? Du bist der Schlüssel zu meinem Herzen. Husbands, you can use this for your wives too. Simply means you are the key to my heart. If the Apostle Paul spoke German, I'm convinced he would say this to us because he would tell us the true key to your heart. To soften it is grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Du bist der Schlüssel zu meinem Herz. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's sing a closing hymn together um, before the throne of God.